So we have uh, Tony Curran with us, and Tony, as I mentioned, was there during the Stonewall riots. And I'm going to ask Tony, because let's have it in his words, what the importance of that night was um, in terms of the gay rights movement, and also to kind of discuss uh, what it was like for him personally, and maybe get into, if we have time, uh, where the gay pride movement has gone and, um, you know, what we can expect in the future. So, Tony... 1969, where are you? It's June. It's it's probably kind of hot out. You're in a suit, as I remember, as the story goes. Tell us about that. You're, you're right. I was in a three-piece suit. I had just come back from a trip to Hong Kong. And uh, I was, that very time, I was in the process of coming out myself. I was a ripe old 27 years old. And uh, so you can guess how old I am now. But Anyway, uh, I decided to celebrate that event by going to Stonewall, which I'd been to only two times before. So I really was not a habitué of the club. And uh, <clears throat> Friday, I went there Friday night, and it was late Friday or early Saturday morning. The cops uh, raided the place, and it had a history of being raided. I didn't know that at the time, but... Uh, all, uh, all hell broke loose. The lights went on, and uh, most of it is history. Some of it is revisionist history, but I was there, and uh, it, it was a spectacular event, and it's, it looks like it's actually changed the course of history in terms of uh, gay rights. What was it like in that space. I only know it as a tourist going in there, right? So first of all, was it actually billed kind of as a, a dance club or was it, you know, a place where like a watering hole or both? Well, I, I guess you could say both. It was a defunct village club. Uh, it was a nice building, actually. It had been redone from carriage houses and uh, it was a popular place among straight people, but then it failed financially and the mafia bought it. And the mafia fixed it up a little bit, and uh, there was no running water behind the bar. It was really a dump inside uh, in a pretty good neighborhood. And the neighborhood at that time had become very much a, 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 the, the center of the New York gay community. So uh, it, it was popular. And the mafia had a relationship with the police such that local ordinances would not be enforced um, except perhaps superficially, and they would give notice, there'd be money going back and forth. So it was really a sleazy club, and it, uh, it was the only gay club, the only place that was welcoming to gay people where you could dance, and it served liquor and all that, uh, which all was technically illegal. And uh, the, the, the envelope within which this whole thing operated was, it was a masquerade as a uh, a private club. Which parts were illegal? Was it that they didn't have a liquor license or was it the fact that there might be gay men there dancing with each other or both? Well, it's a great question because it was that and more. Because in, in the late 60s, although civil rights had pretty much started up in a lot of other areas, gay people were still uh, under <clears throat> ridiculous dress codes uh, you couldn't meet another gay person, and go, uh, that would be solicitation. Uh, you, you couldn't dance. Uh, you couldn't, public people couldn't buy liquor unless you had a, there was a liquor license, and gay people, were, it was illegal to serve liquor to gay people. There, there was just an endless list of laws, many of which went back to the 1800s. And uh, <clears throat> so 
they were either enforced or they were not enforced, and the mafia managed to work with the cops to have it work to their favor. So it's June 28th, going mm-hmm. into June 29th, 1969. It's, 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 it's maybe a little warm. You have a suit on. It was pretty hot. <laughs> Walk me through... Uh, how you get into this space was there sort of a bouncer at the door oh yeah there was a there was a big tough guy sitting on a stool by the door and uh, you you'd approach and he would look you over to figure out whether you were uh, appropriate and uh, i seem to recall it was five dollars and i got two drink tickets and went in when he kind of oh okay even though i looked you know i looked like wall street guy because that's what i was doing for a living and uh, you know, I was so excited to be there. I had worked late. I didn't bother to change into queer clothes. So <laughs> anyway, I went up there and I got got a drink. And uh, I I just started to look at the dance floor. And for the first time in my life, I actually felt like I was in a room full of people who related to me. I wasn't I wasn't looking at them. I was looking at us. And I, I really felt great. And the irony is that within 20 minutes, the lights came on, the cops came in and uh, started lining up everybody. And, and it was a panic situation. Were you nervous going in there or did you feel like this is where I belong? This is my place. Well, I, I was nervous only in the sense that I was a, a 27 year old uh, guy that had lived a straight life up until then, and I was—I just didn't really know what I was doing. I, I didn't have friends in the club, but it—you know—it was the whole thing was an experiment uh, in my own life. And then, and this this happened. And at the time the lights went on, uh, I was just confident in myself and trying to figure out what was going on and why. And I became indignant, which surprises me. Uh, now because it wasn't my nature to be indignant when I was in a vulnerable situation. So they give you these two drink tickets. Does that suggest that you can't actually buy liquor at the bar with money or could you also do that? No, you're absolutely correct. That the the uh, the, the guise of a private club is why they gave drink tickets because they couldn't directly sell liquor across the bar to the public. So it had to be a, a private club, and uh, it, it was a game. You, you signed into a little book. You gave them the five dollars. You give you the two tickets that look like raffle tickets, and uh, they they'd uh, wash the glasses from a bucket of water behind the bar. <laughs> the ice cubes, God knows where they came from, and uh, the liquor was watered down. It was all terrible. You wouldn't go there for the drinks. Um, most of the kids would probably have something in their pocket or their you know. To drink, or they were high when they came in. So, uh, but you know, dancing. There were a lot of street people. It was a real hodgepodge of humanity. Uh, but it, they, everybody was there to have fun. And of course, Judy Garland had passed away, mm. and so there was an element of people kind of mourning that situation as well. Uh, but uh, she passed away that week. Uh, that's right. Yeah, and the, their funeral, I believe, was that Friday night, the night of the raid. So you get yourself a drink. I'm assuming first. That's right. Right. And where does the music come from? People are dancing. Where is is it a jukebox? Yeah, it's a jukebox, and uh, it's uh, you know it, it had all the current 
dance tunes, everything in it. And in fact, the Stonewall uh, Veterans Association has a whole list of the actual tunes that were on the jukebox uh, because they've commemorated the event and tried to uh, preserve it for history. So how many people were there, would you say? And I, just an estimate. Uh, oh, God, I don't know. Uh, just at least a couple, a hundred, hundred and some odd people. So it's not a big place. So people are packed in there. Right. It's it's nothing like these these huge places that people go to nowadays. It, it was, as I say, it was about two or three carriage houses that had, were were stuck together and the walls were opened up. So probably held about 150 people at the most or probably pushed the fire laws and was 200, something like that. Mm-hmm. Can I assume 1969 there's there's no air conditioning? Uh, not there. So it's hot inside, it's hot, too. No air conditioning. Uh, as I said, uh, the bar didn't have running water. The bathrooms were disgusting. Um, yeah, it, was, it probably broke at least 100 codes. Are people dancing with their shirt off? I don't remember a lot of that. Uh, there, there was a mixed crowd on the floor. A lot of people were in drag. I mean, uh, I'd say maybe, I, I just don't know how many, but there were a lot of people that were in drag. There were people in regular street clothes, a lot of kids, a lot of young kids that were dressed in very flamboyant outfits. And uh, it was just a, a real let-everything-go kind of environment. And it was essentially the only place in the city you could go on a Friday night or Saturday night and let it all hang out and have fun, unless you were in Fire Island. So the people that were in drag, for them, there was an added concern here, wasn't there? Right, exactly. There was a, there were strict uh, clothing rules, which I understand really weren't written into the law, but it goes back to something in the 1800s about wearing three appropriate pieces of clothing. Uh, and uh, so so the cops would use that as a grounds to arrest somebody. So, you know, if a guy had high heels or a dress or, or something or a wig on, um, that was grounds to, uh, to book him. So the people that were in uh, Stonewall that night... Were the cops arresting those people that were in drag first? Was there sort of a, um, a a triage method? I mean, because you were not arrested. You had a suit jacket on, right? Right, right, right. Well, it, it seems in, in thinking it over as to what exactly happened and why it happened, uh, first of all, it was a routine. The cops, for some reason, didn't tip off the mafia, so the whole thing was a surprise. And... Uh, uh, so the lights came on, and the cops basically wanted everyone to line up, show identification, and then go out one by one by one as they were screening people to leave the club. And this clearly gave them an opportunity to look everybody over and figure out what their vulnerability was and then make up a charge to arrest them on. So, and of course, they would get to the drag queens and they say, aha, you're not dressed properly, we got you, that kind of thing. Or you look like you're 16 years old and you've got a drink in your hand, we've got you, you know, that sort of thing. Well, I was watching this and I kind of figured it out. And I went over to the cops and I said, what in God's name are you doing? And, you know, so you actually asked them. That. I did. I, I couldn't. Well, I was on Wall Street and my job on Wall Street was to catch criminals on Wall Street. So in a sense, I felt like a cop. 
So, and I had just paid a lot of income taxes at the time too. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, I asked him what what uh, uh, what are you doing? What is? Th-? And he, he said, "What do you what do you cop?" I'll, I'll use clean language, but anyway, he said, "What are you a cop? Uh, a lawyer? No, excuse me. What are you a lawyer?" And I didn't answer him, but I'm in a three-piece suit, so he assumed I was a lawyer. And he just said, get the hell out of here. And I, I was out on the street. And I'm still shaking my head trying to figure out what's going on. And people, at that point, I heard the cops say, get them all out of here. Get them all out of here. So all of a sudden, instead of people coming out one by one, they came out in droves. And the street was, because it was Friday night in, in, on Christopher Street, Everybody had stopped out there, the neighborhood people, and they were thinking, what's going on? What's going on? So it became a very crowded, tight little park area, and uh, nobody was going home. Nobody was walking away because it was like a car wreck. Everybody wanted to see what was going on, and that was really the germination of a mob scene. And uh, by then, the drag queens were being rough-handled, and pushed out, and, and there was a paddy wagon there to shove them into the paddy wagon. And uh, this one, I thought it was a guy, uh, some, I don't, I don't know exactly who it was, but they issued a speech and said, what's the matter with you faggots? If you like men, why don't you act like men? And uh, it might have been Stormy Delavery, I don't know, but it, it looked to me like a guy. And uh, it was the person was being roughed up by the cops, pretty seriously, and people started throwing things at the cops. And all of a sudden, we had permission to do that. And that's exactly, and here I am doing the same thing. We were emptying wastebaskets to throw garbage at them, picking up stones and junk off the street and throwing them. So um, anyway, it, it, was, it, it just went on and on, and uh, it's pretty well recorded as to... Uh, how uh, how wild it got. So let's lay out what that street looks like. So you walk out onto the street, and there's actually a park directly across, and there's right. a street in the middle. So people now are standing out in front of Stonewall. They're in the street. They're blocking traffic. There's no cars coming. Oh, exactly. Tra- traffic, nobody was going anywhere. There, there were two intersecting streets because the village is a mishmash of cross of old. It's a historic neighborhood. And so the park is kind of that little space between two intersecting streets. And it was full of people who live in the neighborhood, straight people, the Italian community that was the traditional old line residents, uh, people that were just out for a party, straight people, gay people, onlookers. And of course, Later on, the backup cops tried to get in. They couldn't. They couldn't approach the club because there were only about five or six cops that were the raid. And by then, we were storming the door, and some people were really going so far as to throw firebombs at the door. Tried. Well, they tried to get like a Molotov cocktail into the door every time the cops would open the door and say, you know. Uh, whatever it was they were saying about disbanding, you know, go away. So people are putting gas... I don't know where, what they were doing, where they just lit paper and... I, I don't... We're trying to I throw. wasn't watching that, but I did see them try to throw something into the door. And, of course, that scared the cops, and, and they called for backup, and a little later on, the tactical police force arrived... I mean, these guys are as big as refrigerators, and uh, they couldn't get to the club, and they started pushing and hitting with their batons, basically roughing up 
citizens. So they're not able to pull up in front of the club. No, no, they couldn't. They were about a block or so away. So they're trying to get through the crowd to get to Stonewall. And this is why they're trying to like batter themselves through the the, the crowd. Correct. Yeah. And, And of course, people were being roughed up who had no reason to be roughed up other than they were just standing there. So uh, it just kind of went like that until the late, early morning hours. I mean, eventually I I figured I'd better get my tail out of there and go home. So I did. So I didn't witness the whole thing, but I I figured enough is enough. (laughs) I I wasn't keen on winding up in jail. So... I have another question for Tony, but before I do that, just let me remind everybody, you're listening to WPKN in Bridgeport, Connecticut, 89.5 FM. We're talking about Stonewall and gay pride. And with me, I am so honored to have Tony Caron, who was actually there the night of Stonewall. And we're asking him some questions about what it was like to be there. And so my next question for you is, so there's there's garbage cans around the property. So this is just people that put their garbage out uh, that live in the neighborhood. Well, this is in in the old days, the city had waste baskets. You'd throw beer cans, bottles, uh, newspapers, that sort of thing. Now, nowadays, they don't do that so much. But it was just uh, public trash, I guess you'd say. So people are going in there now, and they're throwing bottles right. and whatever they can get their hands on at the police. What was the police reaction to getting garbage thrown at them? Well, they, they were frightened, I think. I mean, they, they, they were, it, it almost looked like a cuckoo clock. The door would open, a couple of cops would stick their head out and yell at the crowd, and, and uh, we'd be throwing stuff, which would basically hit the building and the door, and they'd shut the door right away, and uh, who knows what they were doing inside. But then they'd pop out again, like I said, like a cuckoo clock, and we'd start throwing stuff at them again. And when we ran out of garbage, uh, we'd use pocket change. I mean, we, you, you throw anything you could find. And I, I, I had some pocket change, so I was throwing that. And So what actually happened was that the tables were turned, right? Very, so very much so, at, yeah. At, at first, the police were raiding Stonewall. And then they actually, are you saying that they could not leave Stonewall because there were people throwing things at them and they couldn't get out the door? They were hostage, yeah. They were locked in there. And uh, thank God uh, it wasn't an era where they'd come out shooting weapons but uh, uh they 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 were in a panic and i think there's a reporter I, I don't think it was the village voice but there was a reporter that was in there with them who has a pretty good description of what was going on inside but they really were quite afraid for themselves they thought we were going to get in there and i guess kill them nowadays of course it'd be the other way around so <laughs> and so this and, and this paddy wagon that yeah. Uh, people have been put in. Were were they able to leave, or could they not leave because they were surrounded by people? Well, it didn't look like they were attempting to go anywhere at the time. They were trying to get as many drag queens into it as they could, and uh, and and when the situation got nasty, um, I guess the, the 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 paddy wagon left. I I really was sort of trying to see what was going on at the club. I I really couldn't tell. So there's a lot to parse out here, right? So here we are in 1969. I just read a report that uh, the FBI did that the uh, rise in LGBTQ hate crimes has increased recently. And, you know, it makes me want to ask you the question, right? So you, you know, are uniquely positioned because you were there in 1969 and here you are in 2021. Um, How much has it improved? And I guess the question, the sub question is, has it really improved enough? Well, not enough, but 
there's definitely been an improvement. And the, the thing that's interesting to me, because mind you, I, I was sorting out whether I could comfortably come out of the closet for 27 years, I guess. And, uh, and, and then I, I was confronted by this situation, which was not about to put me back in the closet. So I became radical then. And, and what does that mean when you say, now you're a Wall Street guy with a yeah. suit and a tie. What does a radical Wall Street guy look like? I didn't know at the time, but I knew within me, I didn't care if I lost my job. Frankly, I didn't care if I got arrested, but I wasn't going to go out of my way to get arrested. And when I went home that night, figuring that I'd seen and participated enough, and I really had to think about it, when I finished thinking about it, I, I realized that I had a large community that I had finally accepted I'm part of, and it was my job to use whatever I have to offer, intelligence, a few bucks, uh, social position, you know, I had college education, all that sort of thing, to, uh, to really move the situation forward. And so shortly after that, I moved to Washington. My job got put me down there. And uh, I, I became involved with the, uh, well, Manachine, with uh, Bruce Veller of the National Gay Task Force, uh, a lot of, lot of radical things, which are actually not accepting the way things are status quo and doing something about it. So let me ask you, and only people your age can really talk about this, I think. You know, I can look at it and say, hmm, I wonder the connection here, but you were there. So we're about, uh, on Thursday and Friday, we're doing uh, Summer of Love as a theme, which is the 1967, uh, you know, explosion of music and all that took place, the drug culture, the freedom uh, movement, all of those things. So that happened in 1967. And so there's like this, this tsunami of freedom, think differently, um, anti-establishment, if you will, which I would kind of call more pro-establishment in the sense of like, this really should be the establishment <laughs> rather than what it was, right? But all of those things, that wave, how much, what snapped in 1969 at Stonewall? What, what was the impetus for it? Because, you know, this had happened many times. There were riots there. And uh, you know police raids and and it... well the police raids were always accepted. I mean gay people up until that point. I mean I'm sure there were, there were other instances. The Mattachine Society had sip-ins. They had protests. There were marches, polite marches in front of the White House, that sort of thing. But uh, gay people were always well behaved and. The theory was that if you're well-behaved, everyone will know that you're a nice person and will move forward and you'll eventually be accepted. Stonewall put an end to that. Boom. Put an end to it. In the uh, sense that gay people... Well, are, I mean, it went public. Going, the they, New York Times, by the way, they wouldn't use the word homosexual. We were all perverts or something like that. But they wouldn't even use the word homosexual. In the New York Times? In the New, yeah, they would, didn't start using that word until a year or so later. Uh, in any event. And wait a minute. So in the New York Times, if they were talking about homosexuals, would they say, are, are you saying they would say perverts? Uh, yeah. I, I, what, I'm trying to remember what the term was that they would use. Um, 
you know, I, maybe I've got a, they wouldn't use the term gay, but use homo, whatever it was, they, they had a real problem. Their editorial policy wouldn't call us what we were. Yeah, we were basically criminals. And, uh, and you're saying even the New York Times saw you that way? Well, yeah, because they had a very, they were, it was always a very stiff, rigid policy paper, and they didn't put things in that would upset people and, and so forth. But uh, more to the point, um, uh, as I say, gay people were, were in the habit of trying to be nice and accepted, and Stonewall put an end to that. And, uh, uh, and right after that, People started to uh, pull together. A Gay Activist Alliance was created, uh, and uh, uh, Mattachine became more radicalized. And um, a good friend of mine started uh, the lawsuit against the uh, American Psychiatric Association <clears throat> that said that homosexuality was a, an illness and needed to be treated, and eventually the, there was a success in overturning that. So... I was sort of recent to the issue. It wasn't my choice to go there and raise hell, but I realized that the circumstance all of a sudden brought me into it. It's like stepping into a whirlpool. And I figured, well, okay, I didn't start it, but I certainly feel a part of it, and uh, we moved from there. And uh, so a lot has been done. A lot of good stuff has been done. And here we are 50-some-odd years later, and it's very easy to think the issue is over, and it's not, because now that uh, these the the freedom to be gay, the freedom to be out of the closet, uh, it's like a big so what. I mean, people who aren't gay are saying they're gay because, <laughs> you know, for whatever reason. But but then there are other issues, uh, all the variations of being gay. You know, transsexual, and uh, do you? carry yourself as a as a man do you carry yourself as a woman uh do you like drag uh, you know what what's your style uh medically are you a hundred percent male a little bit female yeah what what is your say i mean all of this is open and questioning now and it's become a, a political football and you know, we talk about bathroom rules and all this crazy stuff. So there's a lot of legal and intellectual stuff that needs to be talked about now, not just about are you gay or, or aren't you. So, yeah, we're about halfway. When, you know, we're in 1969, you're working on Wall Street, right? right. In the trajectory of your career, did you ever feel comfortable going to work and saying, hey, I'm gay? No. Right. And, you know, the other thing, and I, I say right, because I think that that is, you know, something that you might have gotten to in the 90s. You know, if, mm -hmm. if, if you were still working, maybe you might have said, OK, this is the time that I could announce that and feel safe about it. I mean, for me, I don't think I ever told anybody that I was gay until well into like the 2000s. Marianne makes fun of me. You know, because she says, uh, you know, I've never actually gotten out of the closet, but I can announce now, right, that I'm actually on the air, right? So I'm, you know, so when would you say that you actually, in your mind, well, exited it, the closet permanently? Wow. You know, it's possible I'm still not there. I mean, I've really had at least 27 years of being taught 
that it's no good, it's not good, you're wasting your life, you're throwing everything away. And so it, it's it's been uh, more of a private thing, but public in the sense that I know who I want to be around, uh, not gay people exclusively. I mean, I like all people, but I mean, I'm comfortable with gay people, and I want to be helpful to the issues that really matter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, politically getting involved with things that, that create barriers uh, make no sense. I find them totally objectionable. Uh, it's important to focus on dealing with them as relates to gay people, but that doesn't exclude the racial stuff because gay people are everywhere. It involves sex issues, sexuality, male, female, whatever, medical issues. It involves racial issues. I mean, it's really much more than who you want to go home with tonight. And, you know, that's where I am now. And and yet, I'm not going to run down the street screaming I'm gay. I mean, decent people that I know who are straight don't run down the street saying they're straight. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make sense. Fair enough. Fair enough. So let me ask you this question, right? Because something really big has changed for you since the last time I interviewed you. Uh-oh. What? Yes. So, um, and I was so um, honored to be there when this happened, but you very recently got married. And so I want to ask this question. So, um, you know, what did that mean to you uh, that you were able to do it when, you know, really for most of your life you would not have been able to do it? Talk to me about what that feels like now. Well, it's a great question because everybody seems to be getting married nowadays. And some of our friends get married because it's a tax uh, deal. It's economically sensible and so forth. And a lot of people because they really love each other. And, um, and my partner and I, Jonathan, I'll use his name, not his last name, um, have been together for a number of years. And uh, there's no question as to the bond between us. And when he asked me, I I was a bit dumbfounded because (laughs) I didn't quite know what to say. And it took me about a half an hour to think about it. And I realized that all these 50 some odd years, 60 years of what am I? And, you know, what is my relationship? Boyfriend, trick, uh, roommate, um, guy I'm seeing, uh, partner, uh, what was it? Domestic partner. You know, I think all of these terms we've we've kind of gone from A to B to C to whatever, and uh, and and now I guess the latest one was just partner. And I thought, you know, that really doesn't say enough. And he's my husband, and I feel awkward using the term. Uh. I feel awkward. Uh, because, uh, you know, I, I just don't want to invite stupid questions, but I can't think of another term that's appropriate for our relationship. And now that the law allows us to be married, there it is. And I said, yes, of course, let's get married. It makes sense. You know, I have to tell you, and um, this is just teasing you a little bit, but I've actually never seen you speechless. But <laughs> I was actually there when, when, when Jonathan asked you to marry him, and... You were speechless for a minute. And I wondered how much of that 
um, and I'll just speak for myself for a minute, that, you know, when we got married, there is something about the legality of it that it is now, you know, a public document that, that you know, Marianne and I are married, right? Did, did that go through your mind? Because it, I have to admit that it went through my mind. Well, I, I mean, all of that went through my mind during the years leading up to the proposal and acceptance. <laughs> and So what was wrong with Jonathan? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what, what, Jonathan, what took you so long? Well, I mean, you could say the same about me. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that is true, because, like, who asks who, right? I exactly. Mean, and and uh, my brother, who passed away years ago, used to say that gay relationships, male gay relationships, are, are, are doomed because you've got two masculine um, ambitions who are always going to be fighting with each other and something like that. I figured, oh, boy, he loves me, but he doesn't understand being gay. And yet, the, the, this truth to the fact that two guys are just, by their very nature, kind of in a, uh, I don't know, a negotiation, whatever it is. And um, it, it could be a power thing. And I, I, I don't want to sound sexist, but I don't think women do the power thing as much as guys do. And that might be the only inhibition I had is like uh, who's going to make the first move (laughs) (laughs) so you're listening to listener supported radio WPKN in Bridgeport Connecticut 89.5 FM as you know we're celebrating uh, the release of Joni Mitchell's Blue and we're also celebrating Gay Pride and in order to do that I invited Anthony Curran who uh, was at Stonewall in 1969 to come speak to us about what that experience was like and some of his Uh, thoughts about where we are with the gay pride movement going forward. So I want to give Tony the last word. So, you know, we've talked about where we were in 1969, where we are in 2021. What is your last word on this subject? Well, the Stonewall Rebellion, which is a better term for it, really wasn't a riot. If, If there was any riot, it was the police that rioted, and the gay people rebelled against that. And It was really the first time there was a widely publicized rebellion in support of gay civil rights. And that's why it became so well known. And I think it's great that it has become the uh, focal point of the month of June, which really is more about the whole issue of gay civil rights. And what I don't want people to do is get all tangled up in Stonewall and forget that we're still in the middle of trying to make things better and, and get the laws and all of that stuff straightened out because there's a lot of work still to be done and Stonewall didn't start it. A lot of brave people were working for decades before Stonewall that really set the platform from which we had the courage to fight the cops. And uh, so we can't forget the people that came before Stonewall, and we can't think Stonewall solved everything. So there's a lot of work still to be done. Some of us old coots are a little tired and wobbly, and so it's the kids are going to have to step up and uh, carry the torch. So we acknowledge that we're here today because of something somebody else did before we came. So we thank Anthony Curran. We are going to continue now 
with our 50th anniversary celebration of the release of Blue. And, but before I do that, I just want to thank you again for making the trek from the Hamptons over here via the, uh, the old Bridgeport Ferry. So thank you so much for doing that.